Perspectives on Slavery and the Slave Trade, Part 1, Background and Olida Equiano. The slave trade during this period was sometimes referred to as a triangular trade, triangular because there were three sides to it, like a triangle. First, money and manufactured products such as textiles flowed to the African Gold Coast, where slaves were bought or kidnapped. Second, slaves were then transported from Africa to the colonies in the West Indies. This was the infamous Middle Passage because it was the middle side of the triangle. And finally, sugar, coffee, and chocolate are transported from the colonies back to Britain. Every leg of this triangle was profitable. 300,000 slaves were sold in the colonies from 1783 to 1793, the peak years of the trade. In the infamous Zong incident, 133 weak and diseased slaves were jettisoned into shark-infested waters for the insurance money. Unlike the history of the abolition of slavery in America, which ended at a single historical moment, the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, there were three distinct phases to the ending of slavery and the slave trade in the British Empire. The first phase is 1772, the Mansfield Judgment. In 1771, James Somerset, a Virginia slave, was brought by his owner to England. He refused to return. His lawyers argued that, quote, slavery is not a natural, tis a municipal relation, an institution therefore confined to certain places and necessarily dropped by passage into a country where such municipal regulations do not exist, end quote. They further argued that England's air is deemed too pure for slaves to breathe in it. The judge in the case, William Murray, Earl of Mansfield, ruled that slavery could only exist where it was specifically allowed by law, and that in the absence of any such law in England, Somerset must be set free. Effectively, this case established the legal precedent that slavery was not permitted in England. That was in 1772. The second stage is 1807. The first bills outlawing the slave trade were introduced in Parliament back in 1778 by Prime Minister William Pitt. Finally, after numerous failures in Parliament, William Wilberforce's bill passed in Parliament in 1807, abolishing the slave trade. But note that while this bill abolished the slave trade, slavery is still legal in the colonies in the West Indies. Finally, in 1833, the Emancipation Bill freed 800,000 slaves in the British colonies. The owners were compensated more than 20 million pounds, That was a great deal of money in 1833. We can convert that figure to today's equivalent by using average earnings as the means of computing the relative worth of a sum of money. And there are some websites that provide calculators for this. Those 20 million pounds in 1833 are equivalent to about 30 billion American dollars today.
So as we have seen, there were three distinct phases to the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. The interesting narrative of the life of Olida Equiano, or Gustavus Vassa, the African, written by himself from 1789, was the most famous of a number of first-person slave narratives published during the debate over the slavery issue. Part of the appeal of the narrative is the way it encompasses multiple genres, the picaresque adventure, the religious conversion narrative, and the narrative of social mobility. One thing we discover as we read the interesting narrative is how Equiano's name changes as he is repeatedly resold and renamed by a succession of masters. During the course of his adventures, Equiano travels from Africa to England, to the West Indies, to Canada, to Central America, to the Arctic, to England. And he has a variety of prof- professions, including a plantation manager, a navigator, a merchant, and even a hairdresser. One of the most fascinating aspects is the shift in perspective in the early parts of the interesting narrative. Shortly after, Equiano is captured by the slave traders and taken aboard the slave ship. He writes, I was now persuaded that I had gotten into a world of bad spirits and that they were going to kill me. Their complexions, too, differing so much from ours, their long hair and the language they spoke, which was very different from any I had ever heard, united to confirm me in this belief. Indeed, such were the horrors of my views and fears at the moment that, if ten thousand worlds had been my own, I would have freely parted with them all to have exchanged my condition with that of the meanest slave in my own country. When I looked round the ship, too, and saw a large furnace or copper boiling, and a multitude of black people of every description chained together, every one of their countenances expressing dejection and sorrow, I no longer doubted of my fate, and quite overpowered with horror and anguish, I fell motionless on the deck and fainted. When I recovered a little, I found some black people about me who I believed were some of those who had brought me on board and had been receiving their pay. They talked to me in order to cheer me, but all in vain. I asked them if we were not to be eaten by those white men with horrible looks, red faces, and loose hair. They told me I was not, and one of the crew brought me a small portion of spiritous liquor in a wine glass, but being afraid of him, I would not take it out of his hand. One of the blacks, therefore, took it from him and gave it to me, and I took a little down my pallet, which, instead of reviving me, as they thought it would, threw me into the greatest consternation at the strange feeling it produced, having never tasted any such liquor before. Soon after this, the blacks who brought me on board went off and left me abandoned to despair. End of quote. The white slavers are seen as bad spirits, and he fears being eaten by these white men with horrible looks, red faces, and long hair. For the white readers of this period, this represents a dramatic reversal of perspective, as Equiano sees the whites as barbaric and possibly even cannibals. There are also many references to the brutal cruelty of the whites, not just to the slaves, but even to each other, as we will see. 
His account is notable for its vividness, such as his description of the stench of the slavehold. I was soon put down hinder the decks, and there I perceived received such a salutation in my nostrils as I had never experienced in my life, so that with the loathsomeness of the stench and crying together, I became so sick and low that I was not able to eat, nor had I the least desire to taste anything. In the recent film Amazing Grace, which tells the story of William Wilberforce's quest to end the slave trade, Wilberforce brings a party of the upper class and nobility alongside a slave ship, the Madagascar, that has just returned from a slave trading voyage, and they hold handkerchiefs over their noses because of the stench. And this is from outside the ship. In fact, the conditions were so loathsome that Equiano notes that many slaves would have preferred suicide. He writes, I had never experienced anything of this kind before, and although not being used to the water, I naturally feared that element the first time I saw it. Yet, nevertheless, could I have got over the nettings, I would have jumped over the side, but I could not. And besides, the crew used to watch us very closely, who were not chained down to the decks, lest we should leap into the water. Equiano goes on, I inquired of these what was to be done with us. They gave me to understand we were to be carried to these white people's country to work for them. I then was a little revived, and I thought, if it were no worse than working, my situation was not so desperate. But still I feared I should be put to death. The white people looked and acted, as I thought, in so savage a manner. For I had never seen among any people such instances of brutal cruelty and this is not only shown toward us blacks, but also to some of the whites themselves. One white man in particular I saw, when we were permitted to be on deck, flogged so unmercifully with a large rope near the foremast that he died in consequence of it, and they tossed him over the side as they would have done a brute. End of quote. Equiano also makes numerous observations about the hygiene, or lack thereof, of his captors, which he has difficulty in reconciling with their intelligence. Quote, I was astonished at the wisdom of the white people in all things I saw, but was amazed at their not sacrificing or making any offerings and eating with unwashed hands and touching the dead. End of quote. Again, the whites are seen as barbarians in a reversal of the British reader's expectations. Equiano became known as the Black Christian because he was baptized and taught from the Bible. This was somewhat atypical because many slavers and slave owners did not permit their slaves to be baptized. As we read the interesting narrative, we see that Equiano works hard, saves money, and is eventually able to save enough money to purchase his freedom. But note that even as a free man, he is still always at risk of being sold back into slavery again. This ever-present risk is similar to that recounted by the American Solomon Northrup, whose memoir, Twelve Years a Slave, was adapted into a film and won the Best Picture Academy Award in 2013. We'll continue this discussion of slavery and the slave trade and examine some other responses in part two.